This week on Geek Explained, we're celebrating 75 episodes of this podcast. And as we begin the march to episode 100, this week's episode dives into the history of my favorite team in comics, the Justice Society of America. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is episode 75. Uh, it feels like just yesterday we were doing the very first episode of the podcast, and now here we are, 75 episodes in. I cannot explain how happy I am about this. I can't explain how thankful I am that listeners just like you continue to tune in every week to hear me rant about uh, stuff that I think is cool that other people might not think is cool. But um, overall, I'm just um, just very thankful, very grateful. So thank you for listening to us all the way to episode 75 and hopefully beyond. We've got big plans in store going past episode 75. Uh, we are beginning right here, the march to episode 100. And I... Ah, I'm really excited about that, and I'm really excited about today's episode, which is a full, deep-dive look at the history of my favorite team in comics, the JSA, the Justice Society of America. I'm so excited to talk about this with you folks. Um, we've also got this week's comics countdown. We have our weekly review of episode seven of The Boys, and of course, our newest segment, The Geek Explained Mailbag. But... Before we get to that, let's jump into this week's news. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I got some news here for you. It's not a lot of news, but it is uh, it's pretty exciting news, I think, and it's a lot of bat news. Um, as most of you may or may not be aware of, this past Saturday, uh, what was the date? Um, the 21st. So the 21st of September uh, 2019 was Batman Day 2019. So appropriately, we've got a lot of Bat news and a lot of DC news just in general this week. So let's jump into it. Uh, we have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. So we'll start off with our miscellaneous news, starting with the tease of a possible new Arkham game coming from Warner Brothers Montreal. They were the studio that uh, put together and put out Batman Arkham Origins, which I think is still vastly underappreciated. Um, I won't, I won't say that it's one of the strongest in the series, um, but it is definitely stronger than a lot of people give it credit for. A lot of people complain. It's like, oh, it wasn't Rocksteady, so it, it's not quality. Hush up. It was quality. It was a good game. 
And um, I'm excited to see if they do anything. So the tease uh, basically was this whole thing that DC set up. I don't know how they did this, but across the world on Batman Day, multiple cities and multiple countries lit up the bat signal. We had this in Tokyo, we had this in London, we had this all over the world. And I think that's the coolest thing that um, that comic books are mainstream enough, I guess is the word, to facilitate something like this. I just, I think it's really cool. But the big thing for this and what's um, notable in this piece of news is that Warner Brothers Montreal put out a tweet that contained just what you would assume is just a shot of one of the cities with the bat signal. But there was a little bit of a twist because on this, uh, it wasn't just an image, it was a full video of this still shot of the bat signal on, on a building, which ordinarily, you know, okay, cool, it's the bat signal on a building in a real life city. But superimposed, like, I think it was like every like half a second, an image would flash on the screen and it would basically, it was this like weird uh, circular image and what people got from it after people, you know, froze the video, screenshotted the images, where these were several different images that could allude to a couple different um, organizations in the Batman universe, in the DC universe. We're talking um, the League of Assassins, and we're talking the Court of Owls. So this is really exciting. Uh, there's been rumor for a while that Warner Brothers Montreal was working on another uh, Batman Arkham game, probably set as a sequel to Arkham Origins and a prequel to the mainline Arkham uh, series, that being Arkham Asylum, Arkham City, and Arkham Knight. And uh, this was furthered by a tweet from Scott Snyder following this with a hashtag Beware the Court of Owls. So I'm really excited about this. I hope that uh, Warner Brothers Montreal is working on this so that hopefully Rocksteady's rumored DC game can move on to a different property, whether that be uh, Suicide Squad, Green Arrow, which I think would be really cool, uh, Superman, whatever. I'm really excited. I'm always down for a Batman game. So uh, really, really looking forward to this. Next up in comics news, also on Batman Day, we got some big announcements for Batman, which I think has been um, really, uh, I think, overly almost, uh, overly requested from fans ever since we found out that Tom King would be leaving the book, the mainline Batman title, at the end of 2019 and jumping onto his 12-issue uh, maxi-series Batcat. Uh, which features the Phantasm, and I'm so fucking excited about that, guys. I'm so excited. Um, it's kind of been up in the air on who's going to take the reins for Batman in issue 86 and beyond. So, finally, after teasing it all week, they announced that uh, in issue number 86 that starts in January of 2020, our new team is going to be James Tynan IV. Uh, he was oh he's so good uh he is known for doing the batman and ninja turtles crossovers he's also known for doing one of my favorite detective comics runs the detective comics rebirth run also known as the uh, the batman run where uh, batman got this 
motley crew of uh, crime fighters in Gotham City to hopefully facilitate the future of crime fighting in that city, that being uh, Tim Drake, Clayface, Batwoman, Spoiler, and Cassandra Cain. Uh, loved that run. It was incredible. And James Tynan IV is going to do really, really well on this. I'm really, really excited. His artist is Tony S. Daniel. Big fan of his as well. He's been on just about every single book that you can think of. His art is always stellar, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Inks will be done by Danny Mickey. Miki, M-I-K-I, mispronounced her name. I apologize. As well as uh, colors being by Tomo Mori, or Tomo Mori. I also mispronounced your name, and I apologize. But I'm really excited about this team. Um, I made it very clear that I didn't like the fact that uh, Tom King was being uh, more or less removed from the mainline Batman book because his vision for the Batman character didn't really line up with what... Um, corporate DC wanted, but um, Tom seems really, really excited about uh, Batcat, which I am also excited about, um, and I love this creative team, so I'm really excited about it. This is all going to be good things, all good things, and also during this announcement of uh, the new Batman creative team, uh, James Tynan also may have let it slip that uh, in his run, Nightwing will be returning. Uh, no more Rick Grayson stuff. I uh, have made it pretty clear that the Rick Grayson stuff hasn't been my favorite, but that I have been consistently interested in where they go if only for the uh, inevitable return of Dick Grayson and Nightwing. But it's really good news that Nightwing will officially be returning. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to affect his solo book, but the whole uh, Rick Grayson, Dick Grayson being shot in the head thing happened in the mainline Batman book, and that had to be reflected in the Nightwing book. So I guess they might as well use the same tactic to bring Nightwing back. But I'm excited, really looking forward to this stuff. Moving into TV news, we're talking mostly about the CW Arrowverse, the DCCW-verse, if you will. Uh, and we have some big news. First off, a new uh, all-female Arrow spinoff has been announced officially, starring Cat uh, McNamara, who played Mia, uh, in the most recent season of Arrow, she is Felicity and Oliver's daughter in the future. In this past uh, season, for those of you who don't watch Arrow, um, season seven kind of bucked the trend of flashbacks and instead did flash forwards, where we flash forward, I think it was like 15 or 20 years in the future, something like that, and uh, picked up with the events of not only. Um, Oliver's son, but also Oliver and Felicity's daughter, Mia, who is supposedly, I guess, going to be taking over the Green Arrow identity uh, in this new show, and she's going to be kind of flanked by the Canaries, both um, uh, Juliana Harkavy's newer Black Canary, as well as Katie Cassidy's um, slightly older... Or previous, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say older because that's offensive, but previous Black Canary. I'm really excited about this. Should be really, really good. I would assume before the events of like 
the past six months that this series would be called Birds of Prey. However, I don't think that's the case now that we have an official Birds of Prey film coming out. So I would be interested if they... um, I don't know what they would call it. I was going to say Gotham City Sirens, but they're not in Gotham City. Um, I'm not sure. The Birds of Prey theme makes so much sense, but I don't think that um, DC and Warner Brothers will allow them to call it that. So I guess we'll have to see. But I'm excited. I really enjoyed McNamara as Mia in this past season of Arrow, and she's supposedly going to show up in crisis to set this whole thing up and i guess the show is going to have a backdoor pilot in the newest and final season of arrow which is coming out uh or starting next month and is also going to be our next focus of the weekly review so definitely stay tuned in the month of october for that um and speaking of crisis on infinite earths we have some news and i can sum up this news in three words i had to do it i love that song so much Um, It has been reported that not only is Tom Welling coming back for Crisis on Infinite Earths, but also so is Erica Durance, who played Lois Lane. That's right. Our Smallville, Clark, and Lois are officially coming back to Crisis on Infinite Earths, portraying the same roles that they were in Smallville. Um, I'm not sure how much time has passed. I'm sure that they're going to play it um, for fan service more than for storytelling, seeing as how they got them so late in the game. Um, Production for, or actually like filming production and stuff like that, just began this week. Uh, mere days after it was announced that both of them were coming back so I'm really excited Uh, like a lot of people I grew up with the Smallville show that was my um, kind of my mainstream version of Superman for a really long time so I'm really excited about this but it got me thinking what about Lex Luthor if anything from that show matched or exceeded what Tom Willing did in the role of Clark Kent, it was Michael Rosenbaum as Lex Luthor. And he, I know a lot of people have been requesting for him to come back for whatever reason. Uh, I listened to his podcast, if you haven't checked it out. Um, it's called Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. He has interviews, talks to a lot of people in the industry about you know their mental health, about their insecurities. It's a fascinating fascinating um podcast i really enjoy listening to it he's got some great episodes on lots of people that i uh look up to and respect in this industry but he's mentioned on more than one occasion that people have asked for him to you know make cameo appearances or for whatever reason come into uh the cw shows and make an appearance whether as lex luthor or otherwise just as kind of fan service and he's turned down most of those um, potential offers to do that. And apparently, an offer was extended to him for Crisis on Infinite Earths. And of course, after Tom Welling and Erica Durance confirmed that they were going to be into it, a lot of people were hounding Michael Rosenbaum to be part of this. And he posted up, let me see this, 
Um, he posted it up today. Today being um, Tuesday. I'm recording this earlier in the week, and I will, of course, be releasing on Wednesday. Um, he released a statement on Twitter, and I'm going to read the post, and then I'll talk about kind of my feelings on it. So he says, <clears throat> Friends, many of you have tweeted and asked me about joining the Infinite Crossover, which I think is hilarious. I can't tell you how much this means to me. I'll just be straight up about this. Warner Brothers called my agents Friday afternoon when I was in Florida visiting my grandfather in a nursing home. Their offer, no script, no idea what I'm doing, no idea when I'm shooting, basically no money. And the real kick in the ass, we have to know now. My simple answer was pass. I think you can understand why. I hope this answers all of your questions. Lovingly, Rosenbaum. So I have um, some thoughts on this. First of all, of course, the nostalgia in me wants him to be part of this. His Lex Luthor is iconic. He played uh, probably one of, if not the best, live-action versions of the character. And him standing or sharing a screen alongside uh, Tom Welling and Erica Durance one last time would be incredible. However, as a business move, I totally understand where he's coming from. Um... He has been very protective of the um, of the legacy of his character and of his performance as that character, and I totally understand how he would be hesitant to jump into something with quote no script, no idea what he's doing, and no idea when he's filming. Um, Michael Rosenbaum's a working actor. He's still doing stuff. He has a podcast, a very successful podcast that he is in charge of. And um, running a podcast is hard, as I've come to find out over the last almost two years. It's difficult. So him choosing to, um, I guess, uphold his integrity i guess would be the word when it comes to not just his performance but also his uh business savvy and his time i respect i absolutely respect and i know that a lot of people are going to be disappointed by this news a lot of people are going to ask him to reconsider but from my personal perspective and this is just me as some guy talking into a microphone in los angeles who is trying to um be in the same realm, in the same industry as these people, leave him alone. <laughs> He's made it very clear in a public statement that he is not interested in what they were offering him. And from the looks of it, from the sounds of it, um, Warner Brothers and DC didn't really know what they were going to do with him anyway. And if you're bringing back an iconic character like Michael Rosenbaum's Lex Luthor, uh, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to make sure that this character is treated well, that the actor is given as much as he can to portray this character with as much uh, reverence as he wants to. And if that's not the case, then, you know, it's not the case. Hopefully there's an opportunity later down the line for this to, for the stars to align and for us to get that reunion. But as it stands, I am totally okay with just uh, Welling and Durance as that version, that Earth's version of Clark and Lois, respectively. And I cannot tell you how excited I am about Crisis on Infinite Earths. I was already excited. I just, all of these properties and characters coming together, um, 
Kevin Conroy being there, uh, possibly Mark Hamill. We still don't have a confirmation on that, but how could he not? He's already been in the shows. Um, John Wesley Shipp possibly coming back as both Jay Garrick and his version of Barry Allen. There is limitless potential, infinite potential, if you will. And I am really excited, even if we will not be seeing my favorite Lex Luthor. Jumping into film news. Big film news right now. So let's talk about it. First off, we've got two st- we've got two stories. We've got two stories in our film news this week. We've got a story on Batman. We've got a story on Superman. I'm going to go with Batman first because I know um, that one is going to be more interesting to the wider audience. So let's talk about it. Matt Reeves' Batman, or The Batman, which is coming out... Uh, I think it's 2021 is when it's supposed to be coming out. Anyway, um, Robert Pattinson, we know, is going to be playing Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. And they are making some moves. They are making some moves when it comes to casting for the uh, supporting roles as well as the adversaries, the foes, the rogues of Batman's rogues gallery, if you will. And um, first, the big news that a lot of people are very, very excited about, Jeffrey Wright, who for most people will know him from uh, Westworld as well as The Hunger Games, and he has also been recently tapped by the MCU to play the Watcher in their animated uh, What If stories on Disney+. Plus. Jeffrey Wright is in final talks to play... Commissioner James Gordon. I am so excited about this. Um, This is going to be our very first, from what I can think of off the top of my head in my uh, super flawed memory, this is going to be the first African-American James Gordon in live action. Um, Really excited about that. Uh, I think it's cool that they are looking at actors for their acting ability and not just their uh, comic accuracy, though I am a huge proponent of comics accuracy. If you're talking about bringing in somebody like Jeffrey Wright, who could possibly play the greatest iteration of Commissioner James Gordon, I will overlook it because Jeffrey Wright is an incredible actor, multiple Emmy nominations, and I saw this on uh, Somebody posted this on Twitter, and I think it's perfect. He really gets to the core of what James Gordon is, looking tired as hell all the time. Um, Jeffrey Wright, in every role I've ever seen him in, has just looked exhausted. And that, my friends, is really what sells the character of Jim Gordon. So really excited about that. Final talks, nothing officially confirmed yet, but we do know that that's going to be happening soon. Next up... We have the potential um, casting for the villain of the film. We've heard lots of rumors about um, the film possibly taking some points from Long Halloween, uh, possibly bringing in the Court of Owls, all kinds of stuff. But we do know that right now the filmmakers are looking at Jonah Hill to play a pretty prominent role as the villain of the film and i think that's really cool uh jonah hill if you had told me this like 10 years ago like oh yeah jonah hill's gonna be a batman villain i would just i would slap you across the face because in the past 10 years jonah hill has really not only established himself but evolved his acting both in his um 
or just really evolved his entire career, both in his career in front of the camera as well as behind the camera. And right now, rumor is uh, Warner Brothers and Matt Reeves have given him the option between playing Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin, which I think is the easy choice, or Edward Nigma the Riddler. Now, the Riddler is one of my top five Batman rogues of all time. If you would like the list, I can give it to you. Just let me know. I can do an episode on it. Be, it would be fun. Um, and I think that even though he would fit better concerning his... Uh, his roles in films like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, how he would play Oswald Cobblepot would be incredible. Um, also, the what was the film? War Dogs, I think. I think that's the name of the film. Um, I would be really into the idea of Jonah Hill playing the Riddler. So that's all potential. Really, really like the idea of all of that. And uh, yeah, so that does it for the Batman news. Going into the Superman news, we got our very first look as well as a cast list for Superman Red Sun, which is the next in the line of DC Animated Universe films. Um, This is going to be completely original uh, when it comes to any kind of continuity, and it is an adaptation of the incredible Superman Red Sun comic. If you haven't checked that out, read it. It is wonderful. It is probably the most famous DC Elseworlds story, and they are finally bringing it into animation. Uh, they threw up an image which shows our titular character, Superman Red Sun, right bold center um it looks like the animation style is going to be kind of a mix of stuff that we've seen recently going away from the phil barasa style that's been the uh, new 52 films as well as the uh, teen titans films as well as they've kind of built out their animated film uh cinematic universe this looks from what i'm looking at and i'm looking at it right now it looks closer to um something like the uh, Superman versus the Elite style, which uh, is one of my favorite Superman stories and Superman uh, animated films. So I'm excited. Looks really, really good. Does seem to have some uh, Bruce Timm-esque isms to the design, but we will have to see uh, the official look, a trailer and stuff to really get a feel for what it is. The cast list I'm really excited about. Um... Let's look at the list. I'm pulling this from comicbook.com. The cast of the film includes Jason Isaacs as Superman. Jason Isaacs, for a lot of people, is Lucius Malfoy. Uh, Recently in DC Animation, he has played uh, Ra's al Ghul in the uh, Batman Under the Red Hood film, as well as Lex Luthor in Justice League Gods and Monsters. You can find Justice League Gods and Monsters on the DC Universe streaming service and app. They are not a sponsor, but they totally could be a sponsor. And uh, you should check it out because next month, I believe, that film is going away and being replaced by other films on the uh, DC Universe, uh, under the DC Universe umbrella. So he's playing Superman, really interested. That's a kind of an off-the-beaten-path kind of choice, but I'm here for it. Uh, we also have Diedrich Bader playing Lex Luthor. Diedrich Bader, for me, is uh, a version, uh, one of my favorite versions of Batman. He played Batman in uh, Batman Brave and the Bold, and he is just a prolific 
voice actor has been working in the business for a very long time. Very excited about this. Uh, Amy Acker plays Lois Lane. I'm not super familiar with her work. Uh, it does say here that she was on The Gifted. So if you're a fan of The Gifted, she is Lois Lane. Next up, we have Vanessa Marshall as Wonder Woman. She was in Star Wars Rebels. Who did she play? I'm going to look this up right now. So I am vamping as I look for... Uh, who she played in Star Wars Rebels. And I'm sure some of our listeners are shouting to me who she played. Uh, oh my god, she played Hera. She played Hera Syndulla in Star Wars Rebels, one of my favorite characters, one of the best, if not the best character in that show. She is going to be playing Wonder Woman. Um, I'm here for it. I'm excited. I'm really, really excited. Uh, going from a character named Hera to Wonder Woman is... Uh, you can't write this stuff. This is incredible. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, Phil Morris is going to be playing James Olsen. Phil Morris was in Doom Patrol. And he played... Who did he play? Um... Phil Morris. Oh, Phil Morris. Phil Morris. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Phil Morris played uh, Silas Stone in Doom Patrol. He was Cyborg's father. And he is going to be playing James Olsen. That's interesting. Um, Phil Morris is not a young guy, so I'm interested to see what they do with him. Uh, Paul Williams is going to be playing Brainiac. I'm not super familiar with his work, but it says here that he was in Goliath. Sasha Ruiz, Ruiz, I mispronounced her name and I apologize, is going to be playing Hal Jordan and Phil Lamar will be reprising his role from the DC animated universe as Jon Stewart. And, and I'm really excited about this and this ties all the way back to our first piece of news. Roger Craig Smith is going to reprise his role as Batman from Arkham Origins. Um, I and a lot of people thought that he was fantastic in Arkham Origins and gave a really good read for Batman, so I'm really excited to see him as Russian Batman. Um, it says here, in addition to those iconic DC heroes, Red Sun's premise brings some Cold War-era figures into the mix as well. Uh, Travis Willingham, who has been in pretty much everything at this point, uh, is going to be voicing John F. Kennedy, as well as Superior Man, and if you have read the uh, the original story, you know exactly who that is. While William Salyers, who is... Oh, he's amazing. Uh, is going to voice Joseph Stalin. Uh, William Salyers was uh, Doc Ock in the most recent Spider-Man PS4 game. And Ave Zoli will voice Svetlana. I have no idea who she is, but I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, after I've already gone through this entire news piece, um, Superman Red Sun is set on a on an alternate Earth where instead of landing in Smallville, Kansas, uh, Kal-El's pod landed right in the middle of Soviet Russia. So he is raised and brought up under Stalin as well as becoming a just a symbol for Russia and its strength. And that, of course, throws the entire world into disarray for a variety of reasons. So... 
I'm really excited about this. Superman Red Sun is incredible. Uh, it's a fantastic story. Like I said, if you haven't yet, go back and read it. And I'm excited to see what they do with this uh, with this story and if they're going to change it like they did with Batman Hush or if they're going to make a more faithful adaptation. Uh, so this is going to be released during the first the first the first quarter of 2020. So we're talking uh, January, February, March, April that area. So I'm really excited about this. This is going to be really really cool. I am. Oh, I love Elseworld stories, and uh, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about Joker next month. So, more stuff on that at the end of this episode. Stay tuned; it's really exciting. Uh, but for now, that is going to do it for the news. So now we are going to jump over to the main course, the entree, if you will, for this week's episode as we geek explain the JSA. Did you remember that that was the JSA's theme on Legends of Tomorrow? Because I didn't, and I love that song. <laughs> it's super, super cool. I completely forgot that that was their theme. Um, but yeah, so this is the uh, main course, the entree, if you will, of the episode for this week, which is a full-on geek-splaining of the JSA. Now, the JSA also known as the Justice Society of America, sometimes known as Justice Society Infinity, and a load of other names, um, is my favorite team in comics, period, bar none. Uh, some people would go with the Avengers, some people would go with the X-Men, some people would go with uh, the Fantastic Four even, but through and through, the Justice Society has been my favorite all the way through. And um, that's for a lot of reasons. They... I guess for the nostalgic part of me, I'm, uh, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm a huge fan of, uh, I'm just fascinated by World War II, just that time period, everything having to do with that, um, the countries involved, the economics there, the stories, just, I love that time period. And it definitely helps that the JSA was created during that period, um, I absolutely love the characters that are involved in this as well. I love that they're all lesser known characters because not only were they kind of breaking new ground when they created this because this is the very first uh, comics team ever, ever. The very first team in the history of comic books, the very first team-up book in the history of comic books. So they were already breaking ground, but they didn't have the big three at the time. They didn't have Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. They were in continuity, considered honorary members, which meant that they were too big time to be part of this team. But they basically had to take these characters who not a lot of people 
A, knew about, or B, cared about, and had to create compelling stories with these characters. So I love an underdog story. I love that these characters aren't even the versions of these characters that most people know. Like when people think Green Lantern, they don't immediately think Alan Scott. When people think of The Flash, they should think of Jay Garrick, but they don't automatically think of Jay Garrick. And I think it's fantastic. So we're going to go over first off the roster. We're going to talk about the roster of the JSA. It has been um, ever-changing, but I will go over the founding members as well as the teammates that kind of rotated in and out and why those characters left in certain cases. Uh, Starting with our founding members. So the founding members, there were four. We had, of course, Flash, Jay Garrick, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Carter Hall, Sandman, Wesley Dodds, The Spectre, Jim Corrigan, Dr. Fate, Kent Nelson, Our Man, Rex Tyler, and The Atom, Al Pratt. Now, these characters, I'm sure for some people are like, oh, hey, I know that person, or I know that moniker, but I don't know that name. Um, the, Sa- the Wesley Dodds Sandman is not the most famous version of the Sandman. Uh, the Al Pratt version of the Atom is not the most famous version of the Atom. But these were characters at the time who were... I guess closer to what you would consider pulp heroes. They weren't super fantastically powered. I think the ones that really had the most, like the heaviest power sets, were probably Flash because he was a metahuman, Green Lantern because he had his magic ring, and the Spectre because he was an ethereal spirit of vengeance. Um, and I guess you could also throw Dr. Fate in there because he is on like a Sorcerer Supreme level of power, but he wasn't really treated that way at first. And these characters came together in All-Star Comics number three in December of, get this, 1940. So this team was created in the winter of 1940, um, right before we were about to head into World War II. And by we, I mean the U.S., of course. And what a time. What a time that was. Uh, These characters in their debut appearance really um, didn't feature too much in other books previously. That's why this this was a huge thing. Um, The Green Lantern, Alan Scott, had been a big-time name over at All-American Comics, while The Flash already had Flash Comics by this point. But once those comics kind of cancel were canceled um they brought them all together with some more i would say lesser known heroes at the time and made the justice society so this was the original lineup these eight characters and you could also probably throw in johnny thunder because he did um appear in all-star comics 3 but he wasn't the initial he wasn't an initial member he was just he was kind of like the snapper car of the team for those of you who get that reference um but he did officially join the team in all-star comics number six and johnny thunder is an interesting character he had this magic thunderbolt who that was like super sassy and sarcastic and they would combine to become johnny thunderbolt where he could do anything he wanted basically within the span of an hour uh following this they were joined by dr midnight and starman ted knight starman in all-star comics number eight after this wonder woman 
Diana actually joined the team, which was a huge deal at the time in All Star Comics number twelve. And why this was a big reason, why this was a big deal, was because at this point it had been established very quickly in All, I believe it was All Star Comics number five, that any member of the Justice Society who had a solo comic could no longer be in the Justice Society. They were rotated into honorary members or reserve members, and that's kind of how they kept the the characters fresh so for instance uh in all-star comics number six johnny thunder came in to join the eight-man uh group and at that point jay garrick was rotated out because his solo comic was revived so they tried to keep a good number of eight person uh an eight person roster uh this of course changed as time went on but it was a big deal because wonder woman was considered one of the big three it was wonder woman batman superman still is they are the trinity in dc comics but um batman and superman they made very clear very early on were honorary members and they would never show up in the book save for i believe two instances in the original run and Wonder Woman officially joining the team was huge. She joined up in All-Star Comics number 12. And it also brought a really interesting um, dynamic because this was, this was you know, an all-boys squad. This was a boys club. And Wonder Woman came in and said, no thanks, I'm taking over. Uh, following this, Mr. Terrific and Wildcat that being Terry Sloan and Ted Grant, both joined up in All-Star Comics number 24. And finally, to round out the original team, Black Canary Dinah Drake, the original Black Canary, uh, joined the team in All-Star Comics number 41. They did have different additions to, um, to the team after the initial run. We're talking about Bronze Age, um, much farther on after the Silver Age, after the team had been kind of more or less disbanded and then reunited in the Silver Age. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, the big three characters that were added in this Bronze Age were the Star-Spangled Kid, Sylvester Pemberton Jr., not yet Stargirl, and Power Girl. Both of them uh, joined up in All-Star Comics number 64. And then finally, Huntress, Helena Wayne, or Helena, however you want to pronounce it, uh, joined the team in All-Star Comics number 72. And then we had a little thing called Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's where every single, pretty much every single multiverse was destroyed, crashed together, and then post that we had just one world. So it was one world that went from a multiverse to a single universe, and with that, many, many characters from Earth 2, Earth 3, and all over the multiverse were smashed into the uh, mainline DC Comics continuity. So instead of Barry Allen being the very first Flash on Earth 1, now Jay Garrett came first, and then Barry Allen came later. So following Crisis on Infinite Earths and having the... Uh, the Justice Society members even older than they were pre-crisis, uh, we did have some members join up as well. So we had Miss America, Joan Dale, join in Young All-Stars Annual number one. And she was kind of, uh, she was retconned in this story. It was retconned into existence um, 
that she was part of the original Golden Age team, even though, of course, she wasn't in the original publication. Uh, she was also... Um, we're not sure exactly what she was put in there for, whether it was to replace Wonder Woman being part of the team or whatever. But either way, she was added and retconned in uh, Young All-Stars Annual Number 1. Then we had Hot Girl, Shira Sanders, who is one of the many, many, many versions of Hot Girl, join in the official Justice Society of America book in uh, Justice Society of America Number 1. And then we also had Wonder Woman, but not the Wonder Woman you know. It's Wonder Woman Hippolyta. So Hippolyta's... Um, basically diana's mom more or less and in this story post-crisis she was retconned into being the original wonder woman so it's a whole mess dc continuity has always been a mess but it's um it's just notable that these characters are part of it following this later on we're talking after infinite crisis we're talking about after not only the uh, dissolving of the original team on more than one occasion, but then also the revival. Um, the Justice Society of America book ended and kind of rebranded itself as just JSA, those three letters. Uh, this was around the same time that uh, JLA was on the stands, and this it was basically put up to be like, a, hey, JLA is the book for you. JSA might be for your dad or for your mom, like whoever. So JSA added some characters like another Starman, this one being Jack Knight. Um, they also added another Sandman, this one being Sanderson Hawkins. And in the, to my knowledge, the first uh, legacy membership was Dinah Lance Black Canary joining. And that's huge. Uh, we didn't really have a whole lot of... Um, legacy characters taking on the role of their mentors or the role of their predecessors uh, up till this point. So the legacy additions to this book were a big deal. Uh, she wasn't the only legacy addition, though. We also had Our Man Matthew Tyler, who was, I believe, the son of the original Our Man Rex Tyler. And then uh, we had Adam Smasher, who Adam eventually turned into but this version was the Albert Rothstein version. And all five of these characters joined up in JSA issue number two. Now in JSA issue number four, Dr. Fate, this being Hector Hall, who is a much, much different character, um, also joined as well as another hot girl, this one being Kendra Saunders, who was, I would say, like one of the more mainline JSA or mainline versions of Hot Girl as well as the star-spangled kid who later became Stargirl, Courtney Whitmore. So all three of these characters joined up in JSA number four. Stargirl is getting her own show. Uh, at some point, I think either late this year or early next year, headed up by Jeff Johns, who has a deep love for that character. And it's already been rumored that there are going to be lots of JSA uh, Easter eggs, JSA members dropping into that show. So I'm looking forward to that show for sure. Uh, later on in JSA number 11, they added Mr. Terrific, uh, Michael Holt, as well as the new Dr. Midnight, Peter Cross. In JSA Secret Files number two, we got Jakeem Thunder, who took on the uh, Thunderbolts persona from Johnny Thunder. After this, in a really interesting, uh, I think a really interesting turn of events, Black Adam joined the team on a probationary uh, basis in JSA number 29. He later defected, uh, but 
I just think it's cool that for the first time in the JSA's history, they have a pseudo-villain or an anti-hero in their ranks. Uh, following this in JSA number 37 to, I guess, leapfrog on Black Adam joining the team and also kind of set them up for success after Black Adam left. Uh, Captain Marvel, also known as Shazam, Billy Batson joined the team along with our man Rick Tyler. There are many Tylers. Our man is a generational character and... Um, that's really all I can say about that. So following this, uh, we had Justice Society of America kind of rebrand once again from the JSA back to Justice Society of America. And this introduced a bunch of new characters, both young and old, as they kind of merged both the JSA and Infinity Inc. characters, or the rosters. And so we had Obsidian Todd Rice, who is the son of Alan Scott. He joined the team along with Liberty Bell, also known as Jesse Quick, or Jesse Chambers, for those of you who... Uh, know that character she showed up uh in the cw flash show they both uh joined up in the interim between the cancellation the final issue of jsa being jsa number 87 and justice society of america number one debuting so they joined in the interim between that uh also in justice society of america number one damage Grant Emerson, Starman Tom Caller, and Cyclone Maxine Hunkel join the team. This, this is where we start to see more obscure characters, more Infinity Inc. characters, the younger iteration jumping in with the old iteration. Uh, this includes Wildcat, a.k.a. Tomcat, a.k.a. Tom Bronson. He's not the Wildcat that a lot of people are familiar with. He's not my Wildcat, but he is in this uh, in this iteration of the team. He joins up in uh, Justice Society of America number four. And just the Society of America number seven, Citizen Steel, Nate Haywood joined the team. If you've been watching um, Legends of Tomorrow, you know Nate. He's shown up his uh, powers. He can turn his skin into pure steel. Uh, we also got the Superman of Earth 22, also known as the Kingdom Come uh, Earth that version of Superman joined the team for a special uh, story arc in Justice Society of America number 10. Uh, this was followed up by Judo Master Sonia Sato joining the team in Justice Society of America number 11. Now in Justice Society of America number 12, we had Amazing Man Marcus Clay, Lightning Jennifer Pierce, and Lance slash Magog David Reed join uh, the Justice Society as well. Uh, Magog is an interesting character. He showed up initially from my recollection in kingdom come and so this was a younger version of him post the whole release of kingdom come joining up with the team he was an anti-hero as well uh after this mr america jeffrey graves joined in justice society of america number 13 all american kid uh jeremy karn as well as king chimera joined the team in uh, Justice Society of America number 29. Uh, Dr. Fate, Kent Nelson, rejoined the team in Justice Society of America number 30. And finally, to round out this volume, uh, just in Justice Society of America number 49, Manhunter Kate Spencer, Red Beetle Sarah Butters, Re, Dark Knight, and Liberty Bell Libby Lawrence joined the team uh, to kind of round out that roster. So as you can see, as time passed... Um, that roster exploded. It went from the very strict, like, we can only have eight members, to, like, having, at any one time, 15 to 20. So, long-winded, uh, but that roster is important. 
No more important, though, than the, what I would say are the founding members, which are, as I stated, uh, Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Sandman, Spectre, Dr. Fate, Iron Man, and Adam. Uh, so they did make their first appearance in All-Star Comics number three, which really, I don't even know if I would consider that the first appearance of the actual team itself because the story is ridiculous. So the story, All-Star Comics number three, you can find this on the uh, DC Universe streaming service and app. They are not a sponsor, but they totally could be a sponsor. But in this issue, all of them are basically just joining up in a clubhouse to be like, hey, let's do a potluck. Let's bring you know food together and just talk about our craziest adventures this past week. And then at the very end of the issue, everyone's like, you know what, we should do this more often. And then following this, it really kicked off in All-Star Comics number four, where they teamed up with the FBI to work with the government to help solve problems that ordinary people couldn't. Now, this team very quickly got swept up into the events of World War II, that being uh, kind of touch and go when it comes to DC Comics for a while. Uh, they would have big covers talking about how, like, hey, our heroes are going, you know, overseas. And in the comics, they would have them doing, quote unquote, like, special missions with the U.S. government while never specifically saying, like, hey, we're fighting Nazis. But... Um, this team, which was originally created by Gardner Fox as well as um, uh, Sheldon Meyer, uh, was the premier team for DC Comics for a good long time and really the premier team for comics in general. And it took these characters that people didn't really know a whole lot about and put them front and center on the front lines working together to face the problems that no single hero could. So they were... Um, pretty quickly established as a well-oiled machine. The team worked very well together uh, after adding Johnny Thunder, who was initially kind of a junior member and kind of their mascot. He later, of course, became a full-time member. Um, all of their adventures really dealt with pulp-style uh, stories, fighting characters who represented those kind of villains. They weren't so much supernatural, but they were using the horrors of science. And then later on, as uh, the U.S. became more embroiled in World War II, they faced off with characters such as Per Degaton, and as well as more fantastical, fantastical characters like the Wizard. So pretty soon after this, uh, with the formation of the team as well as the rotating roster including now both Wonder Woman and at different times Black Canary uh, the team kind of disappeared for a while as we started to move out of the Golden Age and into the Silver Age. The team really um, according to Incontinuity were tasked with fighting the battles for the U.S. that no normal soldier could during the war. But following the war, uh, and I think this is really interesting, mirroring the decline of comics post-war, uh, the decline of superheroes in the positive um, graces of the media really declined as well with 
many uh, government officials questioning whether these superheroes in the JSA specifically were secretly communists. This was part of the big Red Scare in the 50s and 60s, uh, kicking off the Cold War and all that stuff. So the JSA was brought in front of the House Un-American Committee to either A, retire, or B, unmask themselves and register with the government. So decades before we had the Superhero Registration Act, the government was already trying to get heroes to register uh, with the JSA. Now these characters vehemently disagreed with this process because they had secret identities to keep. You know, these were characters who had normal day-to-day jobs alongside their um, superheroics. And so many of them weren't sure on what to do. Uh, the Spectre made a big, I, I would say a huge uh, case for the JSA to keep their identities in front of the committee as well as the world at large. But unfortunately, the committee got sway of the public opinion and the choice was put up to the JSA you either unmask or you retire so many of the heroes retired instead of trying to face off with these um, regulations and with the government breathing down their neck so they kind of petered off after uh, World War II and after the disbanding of the team so For a while, that was pretty much all that was said and done for those characters until we get to the Silver Age. Now, the Silver Age was probably, I would say, the defining era for DC Comics. I know that's a huge thing to say. It's like in this political and uh, I would say pop culture climate that we have right now, this really is the golden age for superheroes, comic books, and superhero and comic book fans. Um, This podcast is a clear example of that. We are a product of the exploding popularity for superheroes and comics as a whole. But the Silver Age brought on so many characters. This brought us... Barry Allen the Flash. This brought us Hal Jordan Green Lantern. This brought us so many characters that we now look at today as like those are defining characters. Those are iconic characters. And for whatever reason, when these characters showed up, specifically Barry Allen the Flash, who really led the way and was the first shot fired for the Silver Age, a lot of people were immediately able to accept him because instead of, you know, the, I would say more, uh, I keep saying this word, but I think it fits, uh, the more pulp hero aspects of these superheroes, now that we were in the 60s, these characters were now science fiction. These characters were dealing with space age stuff. You know, Green Lantern went from being a character with a magic ring to being part of an intergalactic police force. So, a lot of people jumped onto these characters and were like, these are the versions of the ca- these characters now. But there was always some silent rumbling. What happened to those original characters? If Barry Allen is the Flash, what happened to the original Flash? Did Jay Garrick exist at all? And as we came to find out in probably one of the most iconic One of the most iconic comics, not just of DC comics, but in comics 
in general. In The Flash number 123 in September 1961, we had the story The Flash of Two Worlds, where Barry Allen, while um, performing like a party trick for a for an audience of orphans in a theater, vibrated so fast that his... Uh, it's... It's hard to explain. So he vibrated out of the frequency of Earth-1 and vibrated into the frequency of a completely other Earth. So Barry Allen pops up in this world that's not quite his own. He looks around for Central City, only finds Keystone City. And pretty soon he runs into Jay Garrick, who at this point has been retired for some time, uh, following the whole thing with the... uh, with the uh, Red Scare and the House... um, on Americans Committee, like all of that stuff. The JSA had been retired for a while, and really the only heroes that were around on this parallel Earth were Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, who were just too big to bring down. So Barry Allen met Jay Garrick and revealed to not just Jay but the reader that Jay on Earth One is a comic book character. So in that way, all of the characters from the Justice Society were fictional characters on Earth, on Barry Allen's Earth. Pretty soon we designated the Earths Earth 1, Earth 2, even though technically um, Earth 2 came first, and that's something that I really enjoyed in the uh, Flash uh, CW show, where every time they would bring up the fact that uh, of the distinction between Earth 1 and Earth 2... Um, Harry Harry Wells, the uh, Harrison Wells of Earth Two, would be like, "Well, we were Earth One technically. We were we were here first. So I just I would I love that. But um, pretty soon they realized that they were on parallel Earths and that they were now, as the title suggests, the Flash of Two Worlds. And the two would team up a couple more times during the. Uh, run of the Flash. In Flash number 129, they even uh, mentioned the Justice Society. They had a mention. They name-dropped it. Though Jay Garrick was basically saying, like, I once ran with a team. Not really saying, like, hey, they're around and people know about them. But he references them and says, you know, I once had a team, but I'm pretty solo now. So after the events of Flash number 123, Jay Garrick semi came out of retirement uh really just to help out barry allen anytime he had uh any issues that he would take to jay and then in flash number 137 we have the reformation of the justice society and this happened and i dug this comic up and i read through it because the original justice society members were being captured they were being uh hunted down someone had found out their identities hunted down captured and put into stasis and the final original member who was on the run was jay garrick so barry allen and jay were able to successfully free the other members of the uh justice society the villain of the story by the way is vandal savage which i love um i don't know if this is the first appearance of vandal savage but um it's pretty cool uh especially considering how long he's been with the comics and been a credible threat to not just the justice society but the justice league uh knowing that he was originally an earth 2 villain i think is really cool so following this adventure the justice society are kind of like 
should we do this again? Should we like come out of retirement? Because it's been, you know, well over a decade at this point where they haven't been a team. Uh, the government has changed drastically. And so they decided, yeah, we're going to reform the Justice Society. And this meant reforming with the specific characters of Flash, Jay Garrick, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, Kent Nelson, um, Hawkman, I believe this was still Carter Hall, uh, Our Man, I want to say this was um, Rex Tyler still, Adam Smasher, who, like we said, the Adam eventually turned into. And real quick, as a quick aside, um, the original Adam wasn't the same uh power set as the Adam that we know who can shrink and everything. Um, the original Adam was just like a really short guy who could punch really hard. And I, I love that. I love that. Cause when they meet, because they do meet and we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, both of the Adams are just like, why do you call yourself an Adam? And I don't know. I love that. But eventually he moved on to calling himself Adam Smasher as well as Dinah Drake, uh, Black Canary. So this team was brought into the mainline uh, Justice League of America book in Justice League of America number 21. I call... It's a part. It's a two-part story, so I call it on Crisis of Two Earths. But the official story for, or the official title for Justice League of America number twenty-one is Crisis on Earth One, and part two is Justice League of America number twenty-two, titled Crisis on Earth Two. And that's basically what it is. I still call it Crisis on Two Earths. Anyway, um, the whole impetus for this was that. Villains from Earth 1 and Earth 2 joined forces to try to take down both teams. And so the Earth 1 team of the Justice League reached out across the multiverse to the Justice Society of Earth 2. And for this adventure specifically, they switched places. So the Justice Society went to Earth 1, Justice League went to Earth 2. And so this, um, this team up resulted in the Justice Society getting their own book uh, once again. And later on, uh, in fact, I think it was like the next year, Earth 3 was brought into existence and brought to the attention of both of our two heroic Earths. And of course, as many people know, Earth 3 is the evil Earth, where all the heroes are evil, and that is where the crime syndicate is. So the Justice Society started to uh, guest star in other titles, um, Specifically, Adam Smasher started to uh, show up in the Adam book. But as we moved into the Bronze Age, we started to see a change in these characters. They weren't just, you know, these characters who were other versions of the heroes that we've kind of come to know in the Silver Age. As time went on, specifically following uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, where all of the uh, histories of both teams were retconned to be together, uh, the JSA became kind of the elder statesman of, and elder stateswoman of the DC universe. They were uh, briefly mentors to a team called the Super Squad, as well as uh, helping out the All-Star Squadron and the... And seeing through the formation of Infinity Inc., which was essentially like all of the younger offspring or legacy versions of the characters forming their own Justice Society. But because it's the future, it's got to be Infinity Inc. So 
following Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, DC Editorial was kind of looking to explain why the characters weren't there at the formation of the Justice League and where they'd been this whole time. So they came up with this idea and story called The Last Days of the Justice Society. So this involved the team pretty early on uh, in the DC Comics history at this point, uh, constructing this uh, weird Ragnarok Norse team-up where um, they were essentially forced to fight this um, unkillable force of evil, be killed by this force of evil, and then revive and keep battling them in this eternally... um, Eternally repeating cycle of Ragnarok. It's weird. It doesn't really make sense to me. Um, But the entire Justice Society was written off in this way by them, you know, getting out of the uh, out of the war, fighting this, you know, unspeakable evil, being trapped in this alternate dimension. Uh, The only characters who escaped during this point were Power Girl, Star Spangled Kid. This version being the Sylvester Pemberton. Uh, version not yet Courtney Whitmore uh, the Spectre and Dr. Fate so only those four characters escaped this Uh, so they were able to show up in modern continuities modern uh, stories and all that so after this (laughs) um, fan interest really started to build in the uh, late 80s early 90s to bring these characters back so an eight issue uh Justice Society of America Limited series was released to garner fan interest in an ongoing. And then during the event Armageddon Inferno, which was a uh, a crossover in 1991, really just, you know, space battling stuff, battling against a character called the Monarch. That's really all you need to know about it. But uh, the final issue of the four-issue miniseries brings the JSA to the modern-day DC universe. They were pulled out of their eternally uh, living, fighting, and dying back-to-back thing uh, out of that parallel universe and put into the modern-day universe so they were able to finally become the mentors that they were really supposed to always be. However, this wasn't going to last because this brings us to the zero-hour A Crisis in Time crossover. Uh, During this, um, the JSA is mostly wiped out. Uh, They are facing off during this crossover with a villain called Extant. And during this battle, uh, Extant removes the chronal energies keeping the Justice Society young. Um, This was... I guess a thing I forgot to mention, because after they were pulled out of Ragnarok, right, uh, they should have been super freaking old, because they were all, you know, functioning adults in World War II, and now at this point, we are in the early 90s. Um, So they had been given some kind of chronal energy from fighting in that parallel dimension to keep them not super young, but young enough that they could still be capable crime fighters. But during this battle against Extant, he removes the chronal energies, keeping the Justice Society young. So all of them aged up immediately, uh, causing the deaths of Adam Smasher, Dr. Midnight, and Our Man. All three of them just 
wiped out. Uh, Hawkman and Hawkgirl were also separated from the Justice Society and later killed. Dr. Fate was also aged up, but he lived long enough to see the conclusion of Zero Hour, and then he later died as well. Uh, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, was kept young because of the mystical effects of the Star Heart, which is the magic that fuels his ring and his lantern. But he lost the use of his ring and be kind of rebranded himself as Sentinel. So this was a weird... Uh, I don't know how to describe this. This was a weird uh, time for Alan Scott because the whole thing was DC editorial didn't want two Green Lanterns. At this point, um, Hal Jordan had become Car Parallax, had wiped out the Green Lantern Corps, so theoretically the only Green Lantern was the newest Green Lantern, the Torchbearer Kyle Rayner, aka my favorite, and the best Green Lantern, Fight Me. Um, but DC Editorial was like, hey, we also have Green Lantern Alan Scott. So what they did was they, uh, during the Zero Hour crisis, they basically revamped him, rebranded him Sentinel, and sent him on his way, essentially with the same power set, but not being a Green Lantern anymore. Um, following this, uh, Starman retired and passed the Starman uh, paraphernalia and the abilities to his sons. So this was the uh, the birth of the iconic James Robinson Starman uh, run. Starman is a fantastic character, and this run by James Robinson is, I think, the character at his best, but that's just me. So following this, the remaining characters who were not dead, I guess, um, just pretty much retired and retired the JSA as well. Um, Really, the only surviving members out of this uh, were Alan Scott because he was de-aged, Jay Garrick, and uh, Wildcat Ted Grant. However, all was not lost for the Justice Society. In fact, during the events of Zero Hour, right near the moments of his death, our man Rex Tyler was visited by his android descendant from the 853rd century. We're talking legion of superheroes at this point, uh, and probably beyond that as well. So the android who had, at this in his time, assumed the mantle of our man, froze time long enough to show Rex Tyler a vision of the future, which showed the reformation of the JSA, uniting both seasoned veterans with aspiring hopefuls. So we're talking youth and experience. Uh, following this moment being frozen in time, our man was able to die content, knowing that the legacy of the JSA would live on. Um, the big turning point following Zero Hour, though, because after Zero Hour, the team was disbanded, and the three remaining members really were just observing events now. However, the three would soon be brought out of their retirement due to the events surrounding a boy named Jakeem Williams. Uh, Jakeem, also known as JJ, was soon bonded to the Thunderbolt, who was previously bonded to Johnny Thunder, an old member as we talked about before. Uh, following this, there was a huge um, magical cataclysmic event where Wildcat 
seemingly was killed. Ted Grant was killed by an otherworldly being, but rose right back up, showing that he wasn't just an experienced boxer, he also had nine lives. And at the conclusion of this adventure, uh, Jay Garrick took it upon himself to not just take care of uh, J.J. Thunder, but to also train him to be a hero, just like the original Johnny Thunderbolt. And soon they were joined by Sanderson Hawkins, who was formerly known as Sandy the Golden Boy. It... I can't. Sandy the Golden Boy. That was a real hero, folks. Real hero. Um, he joined the team along with uh, Alan Scott Sentinel rejoining as well. Uh, Wonder Woman joined up with the new Starman. Nuclon, who was uh, calling himself the new Atom Smasher, uh, the f formerly mentioned Hourman, Hourman Android, a new Hot Girl, and a new Star Smangled Kid, who would later go on to become Star Girl, Courtney Whitmore, um, to reform the Justice Society. They reformed a team. Uh, Black Canary also joined at this point to honor her mother, who was the original Black Canary and was in the original uh, Justice Society. These heroes uh, banded together. Sandy, the golden boy, renamed himself Sand, uh, which is nowhere near as cool as Sandy, the golden boy, and became the first chairman of the Reborn Justice Society. So this team, back in action, ready to go, and then... Infinite Crisis happens. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Infinite Crisis was basically the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was the, I would say, I don't know if I count Zero Hour as an official crisis. To me, there's been three crises. There's been the first Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis, and then Final Crisis. Those are my three crises. But anyway, um, Infinite Crisis happened where... Alexander Luthor of Earth-3 recreated the multiverse. So a bunch of heroes who were formerly on Earth-2 were put back on Earth-2 and uh, left behind some of the members of the Justice Society. Certain characters who had been folded into the uh, New Earth continuity, such as Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, and Ted Grant remained on Earth-1 and remained with their version of the Justice Society. But pretty quickly, they ran into the other Justice Society that was on the newly established Earth-2 featuring members like the Earth-2 version of Robin. And they called themselves the Justice Society Infinity. Um, I... There's really no, like, way to explain this. Um, so at a certain point in time, there was the Justice Society of America and Justice Society Infinity. Um, Justice Society Infinity was basically Earth 2's uh, Titans all grown up. So it was a bunch of the legacy characters who were uh, more or less discarded following Crisis on Infinite Earths because they had duplicates on Earth-1, and now they had constructed a Justice League of their own, or a Justice Society of their own. And seeing how important it was to uh, leave a legacy and to teach the new generation how to be heroes, uh, the 
initial members, that being Jay Garrick, Alan Scott, and Ted Grant, formed another version of the Justice Society, reforming them with Liberty Bell, Another Hour Man, Mr. Terrific, Power Girl, Dr. Midnight, Sand, Stargirl, Amazing Man, Maxine, Hunkle, uh, Judo Master, Starman, Damage, Nate Haywood, also known as Citizen Seal, uh, David Reed, and Tom Bronson. So this was the biggest version of the team. This was our, uh, our three characters, our three initial founding members, Flash, Green Lantern, and Wildcat. Uh, imparting their wisdom and this is when the book kind of shifted into these new characters joining up with the team to learn how to be heroes under the tutelage of these three veterans and i really liked this i really liked the shift in dynamic i liked that this turned into less of a uh everybody's in the clubhouse and more of a almost like avengers academy style and for those of you who never read that book you should pick that book up wasn't too bad uh but this was basically, it became a book about training the heroes of tomorrow, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, during this run of the team, they encountered Superman of Earth-22, like we said earlier, from the Kingdom Come universe. And they accepted him onto their team for a short time so that they could find a way to get him back to his Earth. Um, during this time, uh, Magog made his mainline DC debut by... David Reed being killed and then revived by the old god Gog. And this being a younger version of the character that Kingdom Come Superman was already familiar with, he was immediately distrusted by that Superman, and for good reason, because pretty soon on, uh, Magog instigated a split between the older members and the younger members of the JSA. So this turned the older members continuing on the uh, legacy of the JSA and Magog left with his team to create the All-Stars, which, again, was uh, a reference to All-Star Comics and the All-Star Squadron, all that stuff. But... Um, because Magog was an awful leader and people just didn't like him, eventually all the teams uh, rejoined together to create one full Justice Society once again. Uh, they clashed with Gog after realizing that this old god wanted to destroy the Earth. So once they were able to uh, defeat him and destroy him, they were able to get Superman back to the Kingdom Come universe. And that was pretty much it for them until Final Crisis happened. Final Crisis was, as we said, the third of the three crises of the original uh, DC universe. And after this, we got the new 52. Um, I'm not going to get into the new 52 because... Essentially, the Justice Society was erased. We did have a book called Earth 2, which involved characters like uh, a newly revamped Jay Garrick, a newly revamped Alan Scott, who was uh, turned into a uh, gay character. We had many different reimaginings of the Justice Society. Eventually, they became the Society, uh, but they were also known as Wonders of the World in this book. I'm not going to really get into it. If you're interested in... Uh, finding out more about the new 52 earth 2 feel free to let me know i can do an episode on them later on down the line but after the new 52 uh they were pretty much gone and i was super sad about that because once again they are my favorite team and them being gone didn't sit well with me i wasn't a fan of it i 
thought that even though you know the new 52 was meant to bring in new readers and establish this new um what is it called this new uh continuity for everyone to jump on it didn't really sit well with me that they got rid of these original characters who paved the way for the characters who are you know experiencing this huge boom in popularity that is until dc rebirth oh dc rebirth you had such promise when you began um this dc rebirth was a big deal because it promised to fix the problems with the new 52 as well as bringing in characters who many thought had been gone forever so they started off with this big dc rebirth special which reacquainted us with johnny thunder who was living in a uh, retirement uh, home and has dreams about the justice society and is shouting at the sky you know asking for the thunder to return to him and we got for a moment we got a flash of jay garrick's helmet in a couple different places there was um in the mainline flash book written by Joshua Williamson, which has been fantastic, uh, we got hints of it all the way up to the crossover, The Button. Now, as most people know, uh, DC Rebirth brought in the Watchmen to the DC Universe and made it very clear very early that Dr. Manhattan is essentially to blame for the New 52 for messing with uh, continuity in the history of the DC Universe. Now... During the crossover, the button, Flash and Batman are uh, trying to solve the mystery of this random yellow smiley face button appearing in the Batcave. Those of you who read Watchmen or watched the Watchmen film know exactly what that is in reference to. And during this point, we find that Jay Garrick makes his official grand reappearance. And I love this. I love this so much. Um, and we find out that he's been trapped in the Speed Force somehow. Something's been keeping him there. And though uh, Barry tries to anchor him back to uh, back to the physical plane like he did for Wally in the DC Rebirth special, uh, Jay Garrick isn't able to stay and he's pulled back into the Speed Force by some kind of blue light, which hints at the possibility of dr manhattan messing with the justice society and having something to do with their disappearance um this all really comes to a head in doomsday clock now there are going to be spoilers here for doomsday clock um i'm going to give you spoilers for one of the late issues so if you would like to remain spoiler free i understand um feel free to pause this uh, episode go check out i want to say it's either issue 9 or issue 10 of doomsday clock read it come back or if you don't care about spoilers let's do this so in doomsday clock we find out that dr manhattan is the reason for the new 52 definitively and that he was the one who's been messing with time post the events of watchmen he traveled into the multiverse and happened upon the dc universe so he initially finds the birth of Green Lantern on July 16th of 1940, where Alan Scott is riding on a train, bridge collapses. Uh, this is the origin of Alan Scott as the Green Lantern. He's able to grabbing he's able to grab onto a Green Lantern, which imbues him with the magical spirit of the Starheart. So 
eventually he becomes a hero, and later on he helps to form the Justice Society, where Dr. Manhattan is seeing the formation of the Justice Society. What I love about this, about this issue, is that we see Dr. Manhattan watching the JSA uh, forming for the first time. And in this initial formation of the team, we see... uh, the members kind of waiting around they're not sure if the team's official or not and i want to say it's alan scott says well once superman gets here it'll be official which harkens back to the golden age so the golden so right here dr manhattan's watching the golden age events transpire he then seems to like turn like turns his head and sees that it's now a different timeline where the JSA are forming without Superman. Superman hadn't even landed on Earth yet. So we're now looking at the post-crisis slash New Earth continuity, where Superman didn't show up until long after uh, the JSA was formed. So Dr. Manhattan gets curious. He starts thinking why things would change so much because of Superman, and decides to go back to the inciting incident of or at least what he believes is the inciting incident of the DC Universe, which is the birth of the Alan Scott Green Lantern. He goes back to the moment where the train is uh, going over the collapsed bridge and Alan Scott reaches out for the Green Lantern and he pushes... Dr. Manhattan pushes the lantern, I think it's like six inches out of his reach. So Alan Scott isn't able to grab onto the lantern. He dies. Boom. New 52. I don't know how this equated. I don't know how this happened. But basically we find out that the whole impetus for the New 52 was Dr. Manhattan's curiosity. He wanted to see how much he could change. And so he knocked the lantern out of Alan Scott's reach. He never becomes uh, Green Lantern. The Justice Society is never formed. And we get the New 52. Um... This book, I I don't want to talk about any more spoilers beyond that, Um, but this book, Doomsday Clock, has been heralding the return of the uh, Justice Society, the uh, character of Johnny Thunder as his old, somewhat senile self has been a mainstay and a main focus in the book, but also the JSA officially returned in the Scott Snyder Justice League run, and that's really kind of the reason I did this episode, because I wanted to talk about this. So, we're heading into the big... Uh, I guess, grand finale for Scott Snyder's Justice League run, which is the Justice Doom War. And to combat the Legion of Doom and Perpetua, long story, we can get into it at another time, uh, the Justice League splits off into three teams, one in the present, one in the future, one in the past. They go back into the past to try and find a fragment of what is called the totality. And while they believe that they are... um, Heading up the Legion of Doom and doing something they wouldn't expect, they find that the Legion of Doom had already traveled into the past and seemingly taken over the U.S. And this is when the members of the team, that being John Stewart, Green Lantern, and Barry Allen, The Flash, run into a young Justice Society. And this is the big thing between uh, the treatment of the Justice Society possibly returning in Doomsday Clock versus them returning here, where he's the uh, Justice Society in Doomsday Clock will be the 
older, more experienced versions, while the Justice Society here seems to be in the prime of their life. Indeed, we have the original members, so um, the members that are part of the Justice Society at this point in this story are Sandman, Starman, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, Our Man, The Atom, not yet The Atom Smasher, it's just The Atom, uh, Wildcat, Green Lantern, and The Flash, Jay Garrick. So this team uh, pledges to help Jon Stewart and Barry Allen not only complete their mission, but get them back to their time safely. And that brings us all the way up to right now, to this period as of this recording in 2019 um that's what the jsa has been up to so long-winded story i know there was a lot that happened it's kind of tough to put an entire history of a team uh which has lasted you know over 80 years or i guess almost 80 years at this point um and try to condense it into one podcast but i did the best i could uh i love these characters i'm so excited for them to return um and i would love to hear what you folks think of it do you know of the justice society did you know of them before this uh if you like them i would definitely check out any of the books that we talked about here uh especially if you're wanting to jump into justice society like right now uh pick up the scott snyder justice league book pick up doomsday clock you should be reading doomsday clock already it's incredible um I would also check out the uh, Jeff Johns JSA run. There, It's a great book. Um, deals with the modern day iteration of the Justice Society, at least at that point. And I would also check out Legends of Tomorrow. Legends of Tomorrow featured the Justice Society in Season 2. Uh, I still kind of think Season 2 may have been the best season of the Justice Society. Uh and it's just, it's good stories. It's good stories all around. I would definitely check those out. So that does it for the uh, Justice Society deep dive. We geek-splain the Justice Society here. I would love to know who you like out of the Justice Society. Who's your favorite member? Did you know about these characters? And um, are you going to be picking up any of their stuff, any of their books? I'm really excited for them to be rejoining the mainline DC universe, and I could not be more excited at the possibility, now that we're getting another Legion of Superheroes book, looking at the future, that we might just get a JSA book talking about the past and the ongoing battle for truth, Justice and the American Way. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing episode number seven of The Boys. That is the comic book adaptation uh, on the Amazon Prime streaming service. This is episode number seven entitled The Self-Preservation Society. This is it. This is uh, the penultimate episode before we head into the finale next week. And this episode gives us a lot. Like, a lot happens here. Um, 
The main through line of this episode is the mystery of Becca Butcher, what happened to her. Um, and really, this kind of also serves as an origin story for Billy Butcher, really giving us the impetus of his character, uh, the moments that set him on the path that he is going for today, which includes the opening of the episode, which uh, is eight years ago, and it's at a Christmas party for Vought, and it's like an employee party, and we find out that Becca was an employee of Vought. She was like a social media manager, and... Um, She's there with her husband, Billy, and this is the first meeting of Billy and Homelander. Uh, it's weird seeing Carl Urban clean-shaven in this episode. I don't know why, it just is. Uh, we've seen him clean-shaven in so many other shows, like so many other shows or other, many other films. Uh, probably for me, most famously, the Star Trek films, as well as Judge Dredd, or I guess just Dredd was the name of the film, but... I guess I just got used to him with the beard uh, for this show, because seeing him without a beard, I was like, whoa, all right, okay, could be a different character. But um, you see that Becca was really uh, eager to move up in her company. She's, you know, Billy is wanting to leave the party early, and she's like, no, I have to schmooze some people so I can, you know, rise to the ranks. They meet Homelander for the first time, or uh, at least Billy meets Homelander for the first time. And Homelander kind of makes a really subtle pass at Becca, which Billy immediately picks up on. And I thought that was really cool. We also get to see uh, The Deep pretty early on in his uh, career, more in him later, um, as well as pretty much just everybody at that point in their lives. Uh, at this point, I guess, eight years ago, um, Homelander and Maeve were like a thing still, and it's really interesting seeing all of these people yet to do all the horrible things that we've seen over the course of the show, but still like probably doing terrible things just you know in the past but i thought it was really interesting uh but what the show really is for the kind of the b plot that kind of evolves into the a plot is it's the beginning of the end for everybody for both the seven for vaught and for the boys uh we're going to start off with uh homelander and Billy Butcher. Uh, Homelander at this point has discovered who uh, the boys are, and they have effectively burned them. That, that's it. Homelander is also, uh, at this point, he goes to um, the, I guess, like the scientist who's caring for him and raising him. Uh, they have a conversation. Meanwhile, Billy is realizing that Everything's kind of gone tits up. Uh, he's realized that Huey and Annie are in a relationship outside of Billy trying to manipulate her into um, getting them more information on the Seven. And so he goes after Huey, basically telling him, like, this is it. Like, I don't care what is going on with you and her. She's a soup, which means she's the enemy. And we're going to have to deal with her. And the two of them, you know, go at it. While at the same time, they realize that they've been burned. And that, you know, all their bank accounts are frozen. Um, Mother's Milk has to call his wife and his daughter and get them into protective custody. Uh, Billy calls the FBI. Um to kind of get all of their loved ones into protective custody, but not before Huey has to deal with some shit, with some 
really bad stuff, basically with A-Train. Um, A-Train has now found out about everything. There's this great scene where Homelander kind of pulls the Seven into their meeting room, and they're basically, he's like, these are all the people who have been messing with us this entire time. And he reminds A-Train, he's like, does this guy look familiar to you? And A-Train realizes, oh man, that's the guy whose girlfriend I ran through, and I ran to him again outside of Popclaw's apartment, and all the pieces are now kind of coming together and then crumbling apart. So I think it's really interesting. Um, there's a great moment in the scene where Homelander basically posits the idea that Annie might be a traitor and that she might be uh, consciously and purposefully helping the boys to bring them down. And as he's like kind of tearing into her, Maeve has a surprising uh, moment of character development where she stands up to Homelander to defend Annie and we've kind of seen this older sister uh, relationship developing between the two of them across this season but this is really the moment where she puts it all on the line and Homelander's even like okay when's the last time Maeve cared about like anybody and he looks at Annie is like you must be pretty special and so I thought that was really cool but then Homelander basically tells everybody, like, these guys are done. We're going to eliminate them, and you are on thin ice to Annie. So Annie finds out that Huey's been part of this now, and so uh, she starts ignoring his calls. And I really dug the stuff that they did with Huey and Annie here. Um, they finally have, like, this conversation at the park where Huey comes clean about everything, but lets Annie know that the love that they have was real. Annie doesn't believe him and then takes him in, or tries to take him in, for the murder of um, Translucent. But Billy comes to Huey's rescue, question mark? Like, shooting Annie, like, twice and then getting him and Huey out of there. Of course, fulfilling the star-crossed lovers deal that we had kind of been like expecting to happen, but I didn't think it was going to be this, um, this uh, bombastic, if you will, if I can use that word. But before all of this, Huey and A-Train have a confrontation. We finally get the conversation that we had been waiting for since the very first season. Uh, A-Train goes to Huey's dad's house. And he basically calls Huey on his dad's phone like, hey, you better get here or I'm going to kill your dad just like I killed your girlfriend. And um, I've been talking a lot through these uh, weekly reviews about the character development with Homelander and Billy Butcher and how they're fascinating. But one character who I don't think I've been giving their due is uh is a train a train has had a phenomenal arc this season and you really it, it's kind of been a slow burn you don't realize how good his arc has been and how fantastic that actor has been in this show until we get this conversation between a train and huey where they're talking about like um uh, A-Train's basically like, you did all of this, you know, blah, 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 all of this stuff because of a girl. And he was like, that girl had a name. Her name was Robin. And immediately A-Train shoots back with Popclaw had a name too. And he, and he, you know, Huey has no idea that Popclaw's dead. And so this is where he kind of finds out. And we know that um, A-Train was basically ordered by Homelander to kill Popclaw. And so you see him really break down, basically telling him, like, what you think that it's what? Like, I kill your girlfriend, so you gotta kill mine? Like, 
what I what I did was an accident. What you did was on purpose. And it's kind of fascinating how good of a point he makes here where, yeah, A-Train's an awful person. He just is. He's a horrible person. But he also, like, he made a mistake. He ran through Robin unintentionally and has been paying for it throughout this entire season. So, um, it really makes you feel for A-Train. And I've been really enjoying his character development and really enjoying what they do with him. And, um, once the season two starts, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with him uh, going into it after all this. Um, following this like really heated conversation, the female just shows up and bah, knocks out um, A-Train's like, knee, I think. Or she like she takes a crowbar to like his shin and it breaks a bone open. So he's not running anywhere. Um, and we all know what happens to uh, trained racehorses when their leg breaks. So I am concerned for him, and I hope that he doesn't get the same kind of treatment. Uh, so I really dug that scene. Really, really good stuff. Um, Mesmer also got his comeuppance when he was confronted by Billy Butcher in the airport trying to get out of the city now that uh, he ratted out the boys to Homelander. And... Billy just, oh my god, so good, so good. He goes after Mesmer. Um, you feel bad for him, but at the same time, Mesmer's just a garbage human being. So um, Billy confronts him in the bathroom at the airport. Uh, he shows Mesmer everything that has happened in his life, and Mesmer is just immediately like, I have a daughter, I have a daughter. And um, Billy just bashes his head in on the sink. Or rather, he bashes the sink with Mesmer's head. Um, it was, I mean, as gory as it's been in this uh, season, I was really put off by this for some reason. And I maybe it's because all the other, like, blood and guts and stuff has been through, uh, like, superheroic or uh, through, like, superpowered means. And this one was just, like, a vicious, like, crime of... I don't know if it's crime of passion or if that's, you know, premeditated, whatever you want to uh, define it as, but it was, it was gnarly and uh, Butcher definitely got his, uh, his comeuppance. So that happened. Someone else who got their comeuppance, the deep. I will say I have never, <sighs> this show has been really good at making uh, the viewer feel uncomfortable with different, um, topics, different characters, different um, choices, different narrative beats, but I have never been as uncomfortable watching this show as I was with the uh, the deep sexual assault scene. Um, deep brings this girl back and she kind of forces herself onto him and starts like, uh, it makes my ribs hurt just like thinking about it. Um, she starts like digging her fingers into his gills and you can tell it's hurting him, but she's like not taking no for an answer. And it's fascinating how much of a parallel this is. And it's, you know, it is the, uh, the idea of checks and balances when it comes to the deep. He probably sexually assaulted so many other women. So this was really kind of the universe balancing that out with him. But it was still super uncomfortable to watch. Just as uncomfortable, if not more so, than uh, him sexually, um, sexually assaulting Starlight. But 
he has had a really interesting arc here. And while I still don't think that this redeems him, um, it's pretty awful. It's pretty bad. And it, it, you know, it makes you feel for him for sure. So he is definitely going to have a big arc in, I think, season two. Uh, there's not a whole lot to do left with him in this season with one episode to go. So, um, him and A-Train, I think, are the two to look out for next season, for sure. Uh, and then we also get to see, just as everything's kind of coming down around them, um, the concept of a brave new world. We're looking into something that has never been before, and that is through the uh, kind of the, the A-plot of the show. So we find out that, as in the uh, previous episode... Billy reveals that uh, Becca was raped by Homelander, but we didn't know what happened to her following this. We just know she disappeared. Well, we get some answers here because um, Homelander had completely, obviously, forgotten about Becca, but he remembers who she is because he recognizes Billy's photo during this whole meeting that he has with the other members of the Seven, or I guess the Five now. Um... And it's fascinating because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what happened to her. He just knows that he raped her and then she disappeared. Um, and so he goes to get some answers from the scientist who raised him and, you know, I'm assuming injected him with Compound V as a baby. And the guy reveals to him that she became pregnant and that because he is uh, superpowered, that the i guess um the development was accelerated so i don't know how much time passed but i think you know billy said something like a week after she was raped she disappeared so uh either way it was a very short amount of time where this baby developed into being ready to be born and um from what we can surmise from flashbacks and whatnot uh becca went to stillwell to let her know like this is what happened and so stillwell brought in the scientist who raised homelander to try and deliver this baby but um the baby was superpowered and it clawed its way out of becca and she died in childbirth and then the baby you know drowned in her blood so again really dark concepts this is one of the darkest episodes in the entire show and that's saying something but um homelander finds all this out and i guess he thought he was impotent but he is really upset that stillwell kept this from him and is going to take it out on the seven or uh, on the boys for sure meanwhile um billy's also using his uh all the evidence that him and uh, M.M. have been gathering throughout the season and brings a case to the FBI to bring down Stillwell, Vought, and Homelander. Uh, the FBI is, of course, able to get everyone's, um, all of the boys' loved ones into protective custody, and then they go after Stillwell. They have a conversation where uh, she's going to bring them down, their whole bid to get in. Uh, supers into the military is going to get derailed until uh, the FBI director is brought into the other room where they find that supers aren't just a U.S. commodity anymore. Um, we find out or we see like footage from like a raid that like some SEAL team I'm assuming is doing and there is a 
superpower terrorist now. Um, I think they said his name, like he had like symbols drawn on his uh, on his chest. I think it was like um, Talib or Takit, something like that. And I'm sorry for um, not remembering exactly what the word was, but it translated roughly to captain. And that is what they assume his super name is going to be. So we could be looking at next season Homelander versus the Captain, um, which I'm ready for. He seems like he has like nuclear powers or some kind of spontaneous combustion. So we will see exactly what happens there. But the FBI is basically forced to let Vought keep doing what they're doing because now, you know, other governments of the world and now terrorist cells might have their own supers so the u.s government is going to have really no choice but to let them into the uh into the military so we're going to see how all of this goes down at, at the uh the conclusion for this season next week episode number eight we've got lots of stuff to go over um and lots of storylines to tie up i don't know i probably a lot of the uh, story arcs aren't going to be wrapped up with the finale. We're probably going to see a lot going into uh, season two, but I'm really excited. So feel free to let me know what you thought of the episode. Uh, feel free to let us know at either of our social medias, Twitter or Instagram at GeeksplainedPod. It's at GeeksplainedPod. Or to email to Geeksplained at gmail.com. Let me know what you've thought of the boys so far. Let me know what your expectations are for um, season two. And let uh, let me know what you've been thinking about the characters so far, who your favorite character in this show has been, and I will check back in with you folks in the finale uh, edition of the Weekly Review next week for The Boys Episode 8. But for now, let's kick it on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should be taking a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like me to try out, feel free to request that on either of our social medias at Pod. that's at Pod on Instagram and Twitter or to email because I'm an old man I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com before we get into this week we got to talk about last week with the Geeksplained pick of the week of last week and to the surprise of I'm sure nobody last week's pick is House of X number 5 of 6 written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Pepe Larraz this book Guys and gals, this freaking book, as soon as I think I've got a handle on what uh, Hickman's doing with X-Men, he puts out an issue like this, and I just go back and I erase the entire uh, chalkboard and I start over again because Jonathan Hickman is just redefining everything that we know about the X-Men. Um, there will be some light spoilers here. I want you to pick this book up, but, um, they simultaneously made Gold Balls, one of the funniest and yet most useless characters in 
new X-Men lore and turned him into probably one of the most important X-Men to have ever lived. They are also finally giving us um, follow-up to the ending of the suicide mission where literally everyone died and we see that death is not quite the end and we get a really really cool callback to um, the very first uh, scene from the very first issue of house of x and it kind of gives me the idea that we're not specifically on a linear plane when it comes to the story the storytelling uh we already knew this because uh house of x was kind of dealing with more modern day stuff while powers of 10 was dealing jumping all over the place in different time and different uh lives of moira but i'm starting to wonder at what point certain events are happening um because according to this uh issue Seemingly, the uh, suicide mission happens before the events of House of X number one. So I'm really interested and hoping that we get some kind of uh, light shed on here. Uh, we do have the final two or final three issues coming up for the next three weeks uh, before we jump into the dawn of X. And um, I'm really excited. I'm really excited. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. We've got one, two, three, four, seven books for you to check out this week. We've got one, two, three, four Marvel books, three DC books. So let's jump into them, starting off with Avengers number 24. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Stefano Caselli. And this is the continuation of the Challenge of the Ghost Riders arc, where um, we're getting Ghost Riders from all over the place. And last issue, spoilers, um, left off with a cliffhanger of the Cosmic Ghost Rider showing up fresh off him killing the Marvel Universe. Um, I'm really excited. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Challenge of the Ghost Riders. If the Avengers thought one Ghost Rider was tough to deal with, wait till they see how many spirits of vengeance have just been unleashed by the King of Hell, Johnny Blaze, including the craziest, most powerful rider of them all. That's right, it's the Avengers versus Cosmic Ghost Rider. So if you're not familiar with Cosmic Ghost Rider, he is uh, Frank Castle, formerly the Punisher, uh, driven insane at a certain point in the future where Thanos wins. And he has taken on not just the power cosmic, but also the role as the Spirit of Vengeance. He's basically, um, dead. if you smash together Deadpool and uh, Ghost Rider, that's what you get. So really, really good book. Been really enjoying it, and I'm looking forward to picking up this issue. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1012, written by Peter J. Tomasi with art by Doug Monkey. Really excited about this. This is um, basically the Detective Comics branch of the Year of the Villain crossover. So this is going to be Batman versus Mr. Freeze, and you can see that plainly on the cover. Um, really looking forward to this. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Year of the Villain kicks into overdrive. Victor Freeze has only ever wanted one thing, to bring his wife Nora back to life in a healthy body. Now, with Lex Luthor's aid, Victor's wish will finally come true. But how will Nora adjust to the new world she's missed? And how will Batman try to tear Victor's dream away from him? So classic... 
Uh, Mr. Freeze story. Really looking forward to this. Uh, Mr. Freeze stories are always great. And they are also very few and far between, which I think helps to uh, keep the quality of that, so to speak. So looking forward to this. Definitely pick this up. Next up, we have Captain America number 14, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates with art by Jason Masters. Um, I enjoyed last issue. Again, I'm not super into Jason Masters' art, but I'm hoping that he kind of grows into it and his style evolves as we go. Um, this is continuing on the uh, the Legend of Steve storyline, so let's jump into the synopsis here. The Legend of Steve continues, as Steve Rogers continues to try to prove his innocence and remain one step ahead of the pursuing Nick Fury. He and Mockingbird journey to Iowa, where a town is held in the thrall of the mysterious group known only as Them. So I'm hoping that with um, this new kind of uh, Steve Rogers focused book that we're going to be getting into more like pulp stories i like that i like the idea of that and this uh synopsis seems to lend itself to that idea so again really looking forward to this um i wish since we do have alex ross on covers alex ross did the interiors on this but um the book's been really good so far so i'm looking forward to this issue next up we have batman curse of the white knight number three of eight written and illustrated by sean gordon murphy um last issue was fantastic. It was great. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this issue. Uh, lots of bombs dropped in last issue as well, including uh, that Harley is pregnant with not technically the Joker's baby, but Jack Napier's baby. So I'm looking forward to this. Also, the whole redesign and revamp of the Asriel character is really, really cool. Um, everything that I wanted for issue two ended up coming to pass so i'm really excited to pick this up i also picked up the collected version of the original batman white knight book for batman day so i'm looking forward to uh, jumping back into that and rereading that as well let's jump into the synopsis here Batman salvages a groundbreaking clue from the wreckage of Wayne Manor and recruits Harley Quinn to confront the Joker for answers about the mystery of Gotham City's foundations. Their investigation takes a dire turn in the darkest corners of Arkham, and Gordon's life is in peril after a new commissioner is named. Lots of stuff to talk about, lots of good um, potential narrative beats here, so I'm really looking forward to this. Next up, we have Superior Spider-Man, number 11, written by Christos Gage, with art by Mike Hawthorne. This book has been so good, if you're not reading this, you need to be reading this. Um, it's, just, it's a fantastic story, and uh, we're finally getting Otto versus Osborne, so really looking forward to this. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Otto Octavius, the superior Spider-Man, saved San Francisco several times, defeated Terax and Master Pandemonium, and has built quite a life for himself. Sadly, the spider-powered Norman Osborn from Spider-Geddon has arrived to destroy it all. Does Otto stand a chance of stopping him? Does he stand a chance at living through this? So this is uh, the big Spider-Man versus Osborn story for Otto. Uh, really looking forward to picking this up. He has gone under some wonderful character development lately. And um, 
I just love this book. It's so, so good. Next up, we have Batman Superman, number two, written by Joshua Williamson with art by David Marquez. The first issue just barely got eked out for uh, pick of the week of last week when the first issue came out, um, but set up a lot of promise for issue two. So I'm really looking forward to it. Let's jump into the synopsis here. The Batman Who Laughs plot is bigger than either the Cape Crusader or the Man of Steel realized. Following a showdown with the Devious Killer's first Sentinel, a jacked-up, dark multiverse-infected Shazam, the pair has to figure out who else has been targeted for similar transformations. Their first two guesses? Someone very close to Batman and the one hero that would make failure nearly impossible, Superman himself. So I think it's interesting that uh, the book is still trying to push the mystery of it all after they already revealed who all is going to be part of this. Um, I think that's where marketing and storytelling really clashes, but... I'm still looking forward to this. Book is incredible. Writing is great. The art is phenomenal. And I'm really looking forward to picking this up. And finally... Big book of the week is Powers of Ten, number five of six, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by R.B. Silva. I'm just, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, Powers of Ten has been the weaker of the two between it and House of X, but it has been laying a lot of groundwork that I'm sure is going to be paid off much farther down the line, since we all know Jonathan Hickman, say it with me, writes for the long game. So... Really looking forward to seeing what they do in here. Last uh, issue of Powers of Ten, we saw the very uh, Mr. Sinister-focused issue. And from the cover, it looks like we're going to be getting more of that. So we will see exactly what that entails. Let's jump into the synopsis here. As Cerebro does as it was intended to do, Sinister does what Sinister does best. And the future comes to an end. The future of the X-Men begins here. So, really good stuff. Uh, Jonathan Hickman, like I said with the pick of the week of last week, has been redefining every single bit of the X-Universe. And I cannot wait to see uh, what they add in this in the lead-up to Dawn of X. So, to recap, we have Avengers number 24, Detective Comics number 1012, Captain America, number 14. Batman Curse of the White Knight, number 3 of 8. Superior Spider-Man, number 11. Batman Superman, number 2. And Powers of 10, number 5 of 6. If you think I missed any books, feel free to let me know on social media or through email. I love discovering new books and being recommended books by you. Um, I was recommended a book recently called Paper Girls, so I... Uh, picked up the first volume, really looking forward to jumping into that and uh, letting you know what I think of it. So that is going to do it for uh, this week's Comics Countdown. Lots of good books. Uh, we're winding down, I think. I'm not sure exactly how many books we've got the week after, but we've steadily been going down from our big giant-sized uh, Comics Countdown where we had, I think it was like 12 books, all the way down to here where we're just at seven. But quality has never dipped i'm really looking forward to all of these books especially uh batman superman superior spider-man and uh powers of 10 and i cannot wait to see what comes next for everyone involved including 
my boy Gold Balls. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Before we go, we do have our Geeksplained mailbag, and we have two submissions this week. Thank you very much for writing in for the uh, Geeksplained mailbag. You can write in your question, whether it's uh, about me, about comics, about anything. Feel free to do so uh, on our social media, at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod on Instagram and Twitter. Or through email, because I'm an old man and I still read emails, to Geeksplained at gmail.com. First off, we have Michael from Florida who wrote uh, with DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths coming up, who do you think will die? Uh, That's a morbid question, Michael, but I'm going to try my best to answer it. Um, In the original Crisis on Infinite Earths story, uh, checking out everyone who died and a lot of people died, um, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, specific worlds be wiped out, like totally wiped out. Um, I'm assuming once Christ on Infinite Earths happens, as we uh, talked about in today's uh, main part, main course, um, the original Crisis on Infinite Earths smashed a bunch of Earths into one. So we might actually see all of the different Earths, like um, specifically like, I don't know if Black Lightning is on a different Earth or not, but if he is, uh, he, along with Supergirl's world, and then the mainline Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3, could all be smashed together into one world after this. Um, It's also really interesting that in the original Crisis, both Supergirl and The Flash died. I think uh, after what we saw in Elseworlds, that we will probably see Oliver die instead. Um, Just because they've had him... You know, this is his final season. We know he made the deal with the Monitor. We don't know exactly what deal he made, but um, I'm excited. I don't, I would probably see a character like maybe um, Jay Garrick die in the crisis, which pains me as a Jay Garrick fan, but um, I could see some of the old guard getting out when it comes to crisis because you got to have some big major character deaths to really sell how huge this crossover is so um i would say many worlds uh probably one of the older characters like a jay garrick uh, maybe a harry wells from earth 2 uh could even be a jesse quick i don't know but those are my top candidates then we have jesse from tennessee who asks uh very simple question. Who's the better Joker, Ledger or Nicholson? Um, that's tough. So we do have um, we do have the benefit of hindsight for both of these characters. Uh, they're very different portrayals of the Joker. I would say uh, Nicholson's is much closer to a comic version, while Ledger's is more of... I would say more of like a quote-unquote, and I don't like using this word, but it's a word I don't really feel like, um, I don't really feel like there's a better word to describe it, is more quote-unquote realistic version, where this character uh, doesn't have anything really fancy. He has uh, face paint, he's got facial scars, and he's just kind of uh, agent of chaos, an anarchist. Um, both characters are incredible. I love both of these iterations. For me, I love Ledger's Joker, but I might have to give it to Jack Nicholson's Joker. Uh, Jack Napier 
because that was the first iteration of the character that I saw. Um, really the first iteration of the character that I really fell in love with. This was before I saw Batman the Animated Series and of course fell in love with the uh, Mark Hamill version of the Joker. If Mark Hamill was in this, it would be Mark Hamill, hands down, between all three. But uh, between the two, Ledger and Nicholson, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I love Nicholson's Joker. It's so quintessential, uh, grandstanding, loud, flamboyant Joker, and I really appreciate it. I don't like that they gave him an official backstory and also made him part of uh, Bruce Wayne's origin, making him the killer of... Uh, Bruce Wayne's parents, but overall, just for Joker portrayals and those isms as the Joker, I gotta give it to Nicholson. So, thank you again to Michael and Jesse for uh, writing in for our Geek Explained mailbag. Make sure to send in your questions uh, this you know, sometime this week so they can be read and answered on next week's episode. Um, and that last question, actually talking about uh, who the better Joker is, is a very apropos question and a great segue into my big announcement for October. Now, we all know that next week, the Walking Phoenix Joker film is going to be releasing everywhere. Uh, there's been a lot of talk with how controversial it might be, all the stuff that goes into it, the subject matter. And I thought, since we are not only... Uh, celebrating a new film in the Batman universe, but also we're celebrating 80 years of The Dark Knight, that we could take a little time, take a month, and celebrate his arch nemesis, the Clown Prince of Crime. So October is officially Joketober. It's going to be a month completely dedicated to the Clown Prince of Crime. It's going to be a month dedicated to the Joker. We're going to be talking film. We're going to be talking comics. We're going to be talking video games. We're going to be talking about cartoons. All of it will be covered. So look forward to that. Joketober will be uh, pretty exciting. I'm excited about it. Uh, I think Spidey Month back in July went really well and I really enjoyed putting that on for you folks so I'm really looking forward to doing an entire themed month once again uh, make sure to send in what you would like to have talked about if you want me to cover a specific um, piece of media involving the Joker, whether that's a specific comic you like, a specific video game, um, a specific episode of an animated series, feel free to request that and send those in to me and I will take those into account while I am constructing everything that's going to go on into the episode. But that is going to kick off next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. And uh, I'm really excited about it. So for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.